God, we anticipate what you're going to do and how you're going to speak. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how it's spoken, not only to us, but through people throughout the ages. It's eternal life. It's hope. It's all these things we find only in Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that not only today as we talk about why this is important, uh, but as we go on through future weeks, as we dig into the passages deeper, Lord, I pray that we fall more in love with you. I pray that the things that bind us or we think are maybe things that we should or should not do that are based around maybe things that the gospel doesn't call us to, we can let go of and find freedom in the spirit-filled life that only comes through Jesus. So God, thank you. We give this time over to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're digging into Galatians. I'm going to talk a little bit about the book, what's happening at the time, Paul. But what I want to do is I want to hit the rewind button all the way back to Genesis for a minute. Because we can't really talk about law and some of the tension around the gospel and the tension around what the law means for new believers without understanding the importance of covenant. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm not going to really necessarily read through all of it. Um, but I will be highlighting Genesis 12 through 17 here in the next moment. Now, what we see in the Old Testament is we see that, that God creates, and when he creates, we see this vision of this Garden Eden, and we see this vision of this Garden Eden. We see Adam and Eve that God created on the sixth day, and he says, go tend the garden. And there's, there's all this language in there of this like partnership and ruling and tending and all these things. That, but he, here's what he says. He says within that, and he, gives, he gives instructions. He says, he says, you could eat of any tree in this garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you will surely die. Well, you go one chapter down and what do they do? They eat of it. <laughs> So what happens is there's now this fractioning that, that happens of God's intent, the shalom, this harmony, this life of this coexisting partnership and ruling under God's rule. What humans did at that moment is they disobeyed and they seized autonomy from God in his way. But here's what we see in God's goodness, and we see this all throughout Scripture. This is like one of the big highlights of Scripture, is God in his goodness and faithfulness wants to continue pursuing, and he wants to continue inviting, and he does it in the Old Testament through an ancient form of partnership known as covenant. Now, covenant is something that I think that we don't talk about enough, to be honest with you, but it's something that's so important to understand not only how God worked throughout Scripture, but also where Jesus comes into play. And so when we see uh, God reaching down, what he wants to do is he wants to call somebody and call their family and then in a way call a people group to be his chosen covenant people. And so what we do, we see them wrestling through, we get to chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel, and then all of a sudden chapter 12, all of a sudden Abraham pops up. And in chapter 12, here's what he promises Abraham. He says, you will be a blessing. He says, and by you and your descendants, all nations will be blessed. So what he's doing is he's calling him and his family, and he's saying, hey, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. So God's now blessing is going to be extended not only to his people, but past his people, at least of this covenant. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. So this is key for us to understand. Now you get into chapter 15. I want to highlight a couple things. Now covenant, we, again, this is, this is unique to us, but here's what covenant is. Covenant is this partner agreement between two parties. And when it comes from a king or a sovereign, it's super unique. It's, it's really unique. Because here's what happens is the sovereign dictates it. The king says, here, hey, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you the ability to live within the blessing of my kingdom, but I'm going to call the terms and conditions. 
So it's sovereignly dictated. Oftentimes this would happen when one king would take over a kingdom and they'd go to the people who lived in the kingdom and say, I'm now the boss. Here's how you live in the blessing of my kingdom. That's kind of how that works. And so what God does to Abraham is that similar sort of thing. He reaches down and, and with covenant comes a few things. It's partnership. There's blessing. There's also terms and conditions. Terms and conditions that say you will do this, you won't do this, you will do this, you won't do this, you will do this, you won't do this, you will do this, you won't do this. Terms and conditions we see within the covenant, specifically the Mosaic covenant, is what we call the law. The law is the terms and conditions of the covenant. Now here's the deal with a covenant. If you break one of these terms and conditions, you're guilty of a law. That's what scripture says, right? Whoever uh, offends God in one point, he's guilty of them all. And so you would know if it was dictated to you from a sovereign, you would know that if you misstepped, if you didn't live up to the terms and conditions 100%, you were subject to death. So pause there. Here's kind of a unique scenario too, going back to the garden, right? It says you have the ability to live in the blessing. You could live in this garden. You could tend this garden with me. As a matter of fact, you could eat of every tree that's here, but don't eat of that tree because when you do, you will surely die. Those same sort of elements are right there at the beginning in the garden. So when we get to Abraham, what happens is after he, he uh, we get to 15, well, it's, it's fascinating. All of a sudden, God it talks about this covenant, and he talks about the stars and all this stuff, and Abraham's like, how, why, how will I know? And, and God says, bring me a heifer. <laughs> it's like the most like random thing. Bring me a heifer. You know, that's not how we make agreements nowadays. We just sign on the dotted line. <laughs> but but what, what he does is Abraham knows exactly what's happening. You could look um, what happens uh, start around verse 17. And what happens is he cuts up these animals and he splits them on two sides. Now here's what a covenant ceremony would do. You cut an animal in half and you split them. What would happen is the sovereign party, the first party, the one who is dictating the covenant would walk through first. And there'd be all this blood pooled at the bottom and they'd walk through the blood. And then the second party, the one who is being told what to do with the terms and conditions would then have to walk through the blood. And as they walk through the blood, they'd look around at the animals and they would know, man, if I don't live up to the terms and conditions, I'm gonna be like this animal. I'm gonna be dead. And so what happens, it's fascinating, is Abraham falls asleep and we see actually God pass through twice. Which means that he passed through as the sovereign first party, but he also passed through on Abraham's behalf. Which meant that if, and he knew it was going to happen, if Abraham didn't live up to the terms and conditions, 100%, God would be on the hook. That's what this means. And so, in a sense, many theologians believe that at this moment, this is the moment where the fate of Jesus being put to death. Because he, God in human form, according to this covenant, is the one who would take on what the terms and conditions say. Now, what we see, if you fast forward to chapter 17, is we see a, kind of a similar conversation. God, God and Abraham are talking in there. there. And, and, and it, it, it's almost like Abraham, he, it, he believes God. Uh, we understand that from chapter 15, right? It says that he believed God and God credited to him his righteousness. But 17, he's still struggling with how it's going to play out. How's this promise of descendants going to play out? I mean, his wife can't have kids and they're old. Like, how is this going to play out? And, and he, what wound up happening in the chapter before, he wound up sleeping with his maidservant trying to, like, help God along. <laughs> and, and what happens is God in 17 says, it's not going to come through Ishmael. And this is going to pop up again later on, I promise you, in, in Galatians, uh, in chapter 4. Um, it's, it's not going to come through Ishmael. No, it's going to come through a child that Sarah has. 
And so he defines that promise and, and that it's coming through her. And then he tells them that they need to be circumcised. It's a fascinating conversation, circumcision, because he says you, and this is covenant language because we see this all over from Noah to all over the place. We see this even when the Gospels, uh, when the Gospels proclaimed in Acts 2, he says, he says you, your sons, and all those who are traveling with you. So it's the sign now of the covenant. Oftentimes with the covenant, there's a sign. I have a sign of my covenant that I made with my wife on my finger. There's a sign. The sign of the covenant God made with Abraham is circumcision. And so we put that in the framework that throughout, from that moment on, throughout until past Jesus' time, people who were born and raised in Jewish circles were circumcised as the sign that they were part of the covenant under the covenant of Abraham. And so that's the framework that we walk in here. Now, I, I said a lot of stuff. I actually want to break because there's more I could say. I don't know if I should, but does anybody have any comments or questions so far? I want to open it up. We got a microphone if somebody does. Okay, thank you. Another sidebar to that. Jesus, when he's on the cross, what does he say? He says, it is what? That Greek word, teleos. There's, there's, there's three words in Greek for time. Chronos, chronological, right? You walk through chronological order. Then there's another one, kairos which means season or moment in time. There's a third one, teleos. Do you know what it means? It means finished. But it actually is a finishing of a contract or legal agreement, which means that Jesus, at the moment he says, it is finished, he's saying completion, it's done. What happened because of the covenant made with Abraham, it's done. It's done. Now, I have some perspectives around covenant and, and, and atonement that means that because it's done, also now the blessing through Messiah Jesus is now going to continue, and it's going to continue to the Gentiles. And so that's kind of what happens here. Now, Paul. Paul hops on the scene, but when he hops on the scene, his name is Saul. Now, I, I don't have time to dig into all this because um, we'll be here for forever. Uh, but Paul as Saul hops in on the scene in Acts 7 through 8, it actually says that he approved Stephen's stoning, his execution. So he, he, we, we see him kind of popping up there all of a sudden. And then in chapter 9, we see Paul's conversion where he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus himself stops him and says, Paul, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's this whole moment of conversion. And within that moment of conversion comes a lot, including affirmation of other apostles, all this stuff that happens because they're like, man, this is the guy that we've been scared of. And now he's like hanging out with us and trying to be one of us. Uh, random, random thought. Uh, um, we're actually going to see that as the gospel expands into Galatia in chapter 13 and 14, it's there that, his name starts changing. All of a sudden, you see Saul, but then you see Paul. I, I might talk about this a little bit later, but I want to highlight this because this is fascinating. Traditionally, what we hear is, oh, God changed his name. What's fascinating is that's nowhere in the text. It's nowhere in the text that God changed his name. It's not like Peter when Jesus says, hey, your name is Peter. Uh, he said that right after he called him Simon, right? Simon Barjona, but your name is Peter now. Jesus changed his name. We don't see that anywhere in the text. That's just kind of an idea we get. Here's what I believe is happening, and we're going we're gonna to dig into this a little bit more with the Galatians, is Saul, what do we know about King Saul? First king of Israel, right? He's of the tribe of Benjamin. All these things that he laid out. Now we see Saul or Paul in Philippians lay out his credentials. And he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He starts laying all these things out. 
To a Jewish person, Saul was like this badge of honor. In Greek, the word is solos. Do you know what solos means in Greek? It's not a badge of honor. It means the walk of a prostitute. And so you have a guy going from Jewish Pharisee to now a missionary to the Gentiles. Don't you think that would be a trip up for outreach? So he goes by Paulos. I believe this. He goes by Paulos because it means little man or servant. How does he set up all of his letters? It's Paul, a servant of the Lord. Slave of the Lord, yes. So we actually see in this moment when the gospel goes to Galatia and Paul is up there, even his name changes because he wants to reach them. And so there's this now this tension with Paul. And here's the tension. is what about the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem? What are they going to think about all this craziness? Because up until that moment, we got, we got to put our mind, I think that Christianity has forgotten the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of our roots. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and a Jewish Messiah that fulfilled a Jewish covenant. <laughs> and so what happens here is all of a sudden, these people who aren't Jewish, who aren't circumcised, who aren't followers of the law are coming to know Jesus because of the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas. And it's like, okay, what now? <laughs> There's tension. Galatians is a letter written to the Galatians, a region in what we know now as the central part of modern-day Turkey. And so Paul's up there with Barnabas doing missionary work, proclaiming the gospel. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the letter, give a, a highlight of that. Um, it, it, I, I'm going to highlight it in three different movements. Now, any, any of the teachers that, that, that teach, they could, they, they could align with this or they could speak nuances of this or not. But this is kind of how I see it personally, is chapter one and chapter two are defining the gospel as the crucified Messiah. Chapter three and four, Talk about this creation of this new family by faith. And you see things like those who have faith, they're what they're justified to be called children of God and sons of Abraham. So it's bringing in the Gentiles now to it. And then chapter five and six talk about being transferred, transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're going to dig into that. Um, also, I, I want you to see a couple of the, 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 the tensions or contrasts in Galatians that Paul is going at. You have these people that what happens is they hear that the gospel has come to Galatia. Now they're going up and saying, you now have to follow the laws. You now need to be circumcised. And they called these, and this is, I'm only going to use this term once because I, I don't think it's helpful, but they, they called them the Judaizers because they were attempting to bring them under the Jewish law. And so what's happening is Paul is pushing against all those ideas. So some of the contrast is the Judaizers talk about receiving the Spirit through the law. Paul talks about receiving the Spirit by faith. They talk about it, the curse well, at least that's what Paul says. You're putting him under a curse. He's like, no, there's blessing. That's all covenant language. Uh, receive teaching from humans. Paul's like, no, I received mine from God. He says that in the first chapter. Not walking according to the gospel. Paul talks about walking according to the gospel. Being justified by works of the law. Paul talks about being justified by faith in Jesus. Paul talks about them being slaves, again, going back to uh, Hagar, the, the, the slave of Abraham, and you'll see that in chapter 4. Paul talks about children, your free children, children of the saved woman, uh, oh, sorry, slave woman, children of the free woman. Talking about flesh, now that's not necessarily bodily, physical flesh. We got to not put that in our minds, but it means our sin nature. It means the part of us that has a desire for sin and why we need regeneration and sanctification. Then um, 
uh, under the law. That's what they're about. And Paul's like, no, we're not, we now live by the Spirit. <laughs> so those are some of the contrasts that you're going to see over the next couple weeks as we dig into Galatians. Now, I want to talk about the timing of Galatians and what's happening. And to do so, it actually crosses over into Acts. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, let's look at Acts 15. Any questions so far? I want to make sure I'm not like just hitting you with a fire hose. I'm a geek about this stuff, but anybody? Yes. I was thinking about uh, God changing names and uh, back to uh, Abram versus Abraham and Sarah versus Sarah. Uh, what? How? How is that part of what you're talking about right now? So I would say that's not part of necessarily Paul's use of his name change, but we do see God doing that when he calls people, just like with Peter, just like, yeah, uh, Abram, Abraham. Sarai, Sarai. Yeah, we do see God doing that. Yes. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? Acts 15. This is key for the context of Galatians. This is what we know as the Council of Jerusalem. I'm just going to read the first verse, and it says, Some men came down from uh, Judea to Antioch and were teaching... Brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. So that's like the tension here. So what Paul and Barnabas do is they come down to Jerusalem and they want to have a council with the apostles there. And here's what they do. They basically, you see, you see Peter stand up and, and, and proclaim uh, well, I'll just read what he says. Uh, brothers, this is verse 7. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips and the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. And he says this whole thing. And then James, who's James's brother? Jesus. So James, the brother of Jesus, presides over this. And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And they write this letter to the Galatians. And uh, here's what they say. They literally say, they say, stay away from meat sacrificed to animals. Stay away from blood. Stay away from strangled animals. And stay away from sexual immorality. That's it out of the entire Mosaic law. And then the very next line isn't even a very legalistically rigid one. It says, you will do good to stay away from these things. So it's basically saying, this is for your own good. The other thing that's in there, like meat sacrifice aisles, some of those is for fellowship purposes. Like if, if, a, if a believer, this is just a, a moment, if say a believer who's okay with drinking alcohol and a believer who isn't, is to get together, the best thing to do is to remove that obstacle. And so there is some of what's happening here in the letter that the Council of Jerusalem is sending up to the Galatians to say, hey, this is also a fellowship thing so that we can kind of get together in the same room. Out of 613, that's all that's listed. And so what they decide to do is they decide to say, you know, it's by faith that you're justified. And Paul digs into this, and it's by the Holy Spirit in which you live. That's the majority of what the letter's about. Now, I want to define a few theological terms for you quickly that you're going to see in Galatians. Now, I'm defining these some other teachers over the next couple weeks might want to take a different angle or a different nuance of these definitions. But you're going to see the word justification. Justification, it's a changing of a person's condition, moving from a sin state to righteousness. It also, is it only, but it also is a legal declaration of not being guilty. Now, redemption, redemption is another term that, that you may see. Redemption, it refers to the deliverance of uh, Christians from sin. So, 
when, when I am bought with a price, right, by the blood of Jesus, and I come in by faith, I am now delivered from sin. So bought from slavery, bought with a price, adopted. So redemption has to do with now we have a different owner, and now that owner has set us free. Now the gospel, the gospel, I, I put a lot here, but there's a lot too. Basically, the gospel just means good news. It's the good news. Well, the good news of what? First of all, Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is available. That's kind of the big overarching theme to that. But within that, he fulfilled the covenant law 100% and he conquered sin and death and dealt with it because we couldn't do it. And he offers now those words, justification and redemption that only he can offer. Jesus did what we could not do. He was faithful to the covenant, like I said. He was faithful. He was the faithful Israelite. He was the representative. He did it. So we are righteous now. We're redeemed. We're secure. All those things because of him, not because of us. Those are some of the nuances within the gospel message. Now, faith. Faith It's complete trust or confidence in something. Also, we see a Greek word for faith a few times that actually means allegiance. It's allegiance. You're switching your allegiance from one king to another. And so when I say I'm putting my faith in Jesus, I'm moving away from the prince of the power and darkness that has this world held at bay, and I'm walking towards the king who has freed me. That's a part of faith. Sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we're made holy, not through our merits, but we're justified by Jesus Christ. And then what he does is the Holy Spirit then moves through us, does the work. It's a process in which a believer becomes more and more the righteous person that God already sees him through in Christ. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. What it is, is the Holy Spirit is working in us for uh, to move us into the identity of who God already sees us as in Christ. There's a whole lot more to that. Um, but grace, grace is a word that we see a lot. It's a free act of work of God that calls us, that redeems us, that justifies us, and sanctifies us. So grace is that work that's totally free. Totally free. So those are some of the the things that we'll see in Galatians. I wanted to define those as people talk about, like I said, they might hit a different spin on it or have a different nuance of it over the next couple weeks. But those are some of the words that we see in Galatians. So here's now the question. Set this aside. Like, why does this matter? Why does studying Galatians, a book, I mean, this is most likely Paul's first book. If not, it's pretty early on. Talking about the tension between Jewish people and the Gentile believers, Jewish believers, Gentile believers. Why is this important? Anyway, you could call it out. We're all equal in God's sight. That's a huge part of chapter three, pitching that yet. Here's here's what I want to say and what I I think would be helpful for us to wrestle with as we walk through Galatians, and it's this. What does it maybe look like in our time to take something that was good or is good, like circumcision was good, that was God's thing. What, What does it look like? How do we do this in a way that detracts from the gospel to Take something that is good or was good and we make it ultimate. We make it the thing. Like, this is, this is what you have to do. And it either is to be a Christian or to be a better Christian. So if you just do this or if you just don't do that. Uh, a couple questions I would ask. What has become part of the Christian subculture and the church way that isn't necessarily essential to the gospel? Those are some questions we need to wrestle with. Maybe it pushes people away. Paul, Paul uses the term boundary markers. What are the things like, here's the boundary markers of the gospel, but we, like we've set the boundary markers, like we've made it more tough. We put a lot more obstacles up. Here's a couple, dress code. 
Maybe uh, we're we're a pretty laid back church as a whole. I, I want to tell you, like some of these things I hit, I don't think it really fully represents our congregation as a whole. But maybe individuals within our congregation, and so maybe you're here. But so I'm going to hit some of these to dos. Like, man, if I just do that, I mean, Paul jokes about. He says. Uh, as to adherence to the law, flawless, is what he says. He was flawless. But then he says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 8 of Philippians, he says, he says, but I consider all rubbish. Rubbish. Those to-dos and don't-dos, those things, I call them spirit, mer- spiritual merit badges. You know, like I, I was in Awana as a kid, and we'd be like, okay, I memorized a certain amount of verses. And we'd like, you know, put the badges on our vests and stuff. But we do that to ourselves, <laughs> Like, man, I do this. I don't do this. Man, I, you know, I listen to the Christian radio station. I, you know, whatever it is, we do those things, and, we, and we, we, we make ourselves feel more spiritual from it. Uh, stickers on our car. Christianese, Christian slogans we say. Uh, alcohol, behavior-based, certain things that we even do, like say for assimilation purposes, somebody who comes into our church who is far from Jesus, walks in our door, what are we going to tell them that they need to do and not do? <laughs> that's, that's what we're getting at. <laughs> do we have that sense? Do we have that feeling? Yeah. M- music style is another one. Um, political affiliation I mean, we think that if, if we vote a certain party, we're more spiritual than that. There's all these things that we put in line. Uh, traditions. I mean, the fun thing about tradition, I love tradition. I'm Anglican. Like, I love liturgy. I love the these and thous. I love, I mean, the, the whole thing. But if, if we place that up, to a point where it's, I mean, I, I remember teaching actually on Anglican liturgy. This is a sidebar. And uh, does, does anybody come from a liturgical background? We got a couple people. Uh, over the chalice, you have a purificator, which is basically a cloth that sits there. And I remember being like, we don't really need those purificators. And they're like, what do you mean? We always have those purificators. I'm like, no, we, we don't need those purificators. So I actually taught a class in my liturgy where I'm like, I'm going to teach you what all the vestments mean and where those come from. Because people like thought it made the moment holy. And I'm like, I'm like, those purificators were there because flies were getting in the wine. Like, so we could either choose to say, hey, I want to be a part of this thing because it has history and rooting, or we can make it the ultimate thing. (laughs) And we do that with so many things. And what Galatians does when we enter into Galatians is it says, hey, those things don't matter. (laughs) Faith in Jesus is what matters. It's what matters. And that's a gospel we're going to take outside of these walls. That's a gospel as people come in here that we're going to proclaim because that's what matters, the gospel of Jesus. How am I doing on time? Uh, I want to highlight something. This is really fun. Really fun. Uh, Numbers 20. Actually, let's, let's go to 2 Kings 18, verse 4. All right, this is talking about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is clearing out the temple. Clearing out the temple, he's like, no, I want to worship God and only God. Clearing out the temple, verse 4, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stone, and cut down the Asherah poles. That's one thing he did, okay? He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to this time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Does anybody remember that story? What happens, Moses... You could uh, make a note to this. Check it out when you get home. In Numbers 21, what happens are they're grumbling, they're complaining, the Israelites are complaining, so snakes come and bite them. And Moses fashions this serpent, and all who look upon the serpent are saved. So this moment God moves in this time in the past is this beautiful moment. It's a good thing, right? I talked about good things, right? Good things that were or that are. Good things that are. But here's what happened. I, I one time calculated from Moses to Hezekiah, it's between seven and 800 years. Seven and 800 years. And what they did was they put the serpent in the temple. They're burning incense to it, and they named it. 
They had taken something that was good and they made it ultimate. So my question is, for those of us, especially if we were raised in church or been a Christian for any period of time, what are those serpents in our lives? What are those things that we worship? What are those traditions? What are those things that we're like, man, that's, that's the holy thing? And what the Galatians and the Jewish Christians are getting at, the Jewish Christians, I would say, are me. I was raised in church. I was, I was brought up in the tradition. I was all the religious things. And I could have the tendency, we all do because we're humans, but any of us who have been Christian for any period of time, this sort of tendency seems to grow. We look at people who are far from Jesus or new to Jesus and say, you need to do this. We're going to add an obstacle here. This thing that I hold dear to me, I'm going to make you do with me and follow along. Are you tracking with me? This is kind of some of the wrestle with why this is important for us now. Because we have a habit, and this is the idolatry nature, our sinful nature. We have the habit of placing things that aren't God as God. We have a habit of looking at the free gospel that's totally free, but you're like, oh, that's too easy. I want to make it more difficult. We have that habit. Creating obstacles. Let me tell you, Paul, his whole deal, the reason why he changed his name, I believe. It's not in the text. This is what I believe. But it's just one of many things that he says. He's removing obstacles. He's like, I want those people to know Jesus. I want them to have faith in Jesus. So he removes the obstacles. He says he becomes all things to all people, right? He removes the obstacles. You know, our world has changed a ton. I mean, I, I've, um, it's a, a, a ton. I look, I look at my grandparents' generation. Uh, many of you are kind of in, in that same generation. So you've seen some of the same things here. What happened, we're after World War II, right? World War II, there's all this like morale. It's like, yeah. And what happened, everybody moved to the suburbs and everybody started going to church. And so they raised my dad's generation in church. So you have this baby boom of everybody who goes to church and Christian ideals, Christian values, going to church. All these things were like the thing. But something has shifted so much, and there's multiple reasons, and I don't really want feel like pulling all those apart here, but something has changed to the point where two, in 2000, this is a poll that literally was just released. In 2000, 2000, there was a, there was a poll that Barna did where, you know, it polled, you know, how many people consider themselves a Christian, right? Or, and, you know, you, you, however you want to look at that, it, people, people I know in America are like, I'm a Christian just because, you know, they live here. But 70% were like, I'm a Christian. They just released a poll from last year. Do you know what the percentage is? This is in 21 years, 20 years. 47%. It's the first time in the history of America that Christianity has dropped under the majority of the population. Now, I don't say that to you to discourage you at all. I actually tell, say that to say we got a missions field. Like, this is awesome. And I know that's like hard to hear because you're like, oh man, like, I know like when I talk to people, they're mourning the loss of once what was. But I look and I say, man, like I, I lived in the Bay Area. You know, the Bay Area is like the top three most non-churched areas in the entire nation. If we filled every church to the max, it would only be like 5% churched. And it was crazy because like people didn't know anything about Jesus. <laughs> and what I'm seeing, and that's a Bay Area. You all know the, the whole idea how the Bay Area functions. It's the Bay Area. It's a thing. But I, I have a niece who's being raised in a generation where the majority of the generation doesn't know what the cross stands for. They don't know basic things about who Jesus is that generations before them just kind of knew. I mean, many of you were probably raised praying in school. Which means that we need to remove obstacles 
for assimilation and outreach purposes more than add obstacles. We need to define what the ultimate main thing is and stick to that. It's the hope of the world. It's a hope of a world that needs to hear it. I'm going to do it on time. Are there any questions so far? Comments, concerns, complaints? Complaints are fine too. Yes. We can run the mic if... For some reason, I just can't identify with that mm -hmm. definition. Because like a friend of mine the other day said, well, you need to give that person God's grace. Mm -hmm. And I thought he, she meant, well, I need to accept that person with their flaws and understand. Well, we were talking about how times are so difficult right now and mm -hmm. people are not themselves. But I don't understand too much this definition. Could you add to it? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so grace, grace. traditionally is God, I learned this in Awana, God giving you a gift you don't deserve. And so if somebody's wronged you or somebody's been difficult to love, what you're doing is you're forgiving them, you're loving them anyway. You're giving them grace. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but what I will say is the way undeserved love plays out in the life of a person plays out from the moment God calls them to the moment God comes back and makes all things right. So you could actually, Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, actually says you could actually call grace the kingdom of God. Because it's the work of God that's unmerited, that's totally free, that's working. Now, what comes under the umbrella of that, let me simplify it, is unmerited love. Because we don't deserve it. We messed it all up. And he still loved us enough that he enters into relationship and does work with us and to us. And does God expect God does God expect us to do that with others to yes. give them unmerited yep. love? Yeah. Okay. He, um, yes. So, I mean, that's, um, that's good. 2 Corinthians 5. We, we be reconciled to God so that we now are reconciliation agents to one another. So, yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah, it's real helpful. Okay. I've used the word and I've heard others use it. Yeah, I, I put a really broad word because I think some of us think that grace is only for salvation. And what grace does, Dallas Willard actually says that, that yes, grace leads us to salvation and offers us salvation, but he actually says that a believer burns grace like a 747 and jet fuel on takeoff. It's the, it's the free work of God in our lives that we don't deserve it, so... Any other questions? Got one over here. Yeah, David, I could, I could just corroborate well, something you said. Uh, you know, being a teacher, um, my students do not understand any biblical illusion. Uh, you know, they're full. Our, our literature is full of, you know, of course, we read classic books full of biblical illusions, and you have to explain every one. Adam and Eve, Moses, even Jesus. Um, our culture doesn't even know the basic story anymore. So I just wanted to corroborate what you'd said there. Yeah. Gives us a mission field. It also fuels, as we hear that, it fuels a desire for, like, man, this isn't okay, which I think is, like, in a way, God working on our hearts when we're like, man, Anybody else? I love Jesus as he's talking to the Pharisees. I don't feel like I need to, to hammer this. We got this. And I, I love Life Church because Life Church is truly a place of grace and love. Um, but 
Jesus does is he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, you know, all the woe to use, woe to use, woe to use, woe to use. <laughs> he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, hypocrites. This is verse 13. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It's like, man, I know I've done that to people before. And I know that we can have a tendency to not have an open door to people for Jesus. I'm not even just talking to our church. I'm talking about me, the people. I mean, it's funny because we all, we all know this. And I, I have people that I'm like, man, I just don't like interacting with certain people. <laughs> and there's certain reasons. Maybe it triggers something from my past. Maybe it just... But everyone's deserving, well, undeservingly invited into to God's love. And when I think about, I, I was raised in church, like I said, I was raised in a very rigid, very legalistic background. It messed me up, honestly. And when I look back on it, I'm thankful for that experience because what I had to do in my 20s, I had to work through it. And when I worked through it, through it all, I'm like, man, I love Jesus. Like, I, there was nothing bad I could say about Jesus that I saw, even like in here. There's nothing bad I could say about it. But I just, I really wrestled with what I was raised with, the culture I was raised with, the things they thought were important, all these things that I just, I felt like all these shoulds. And, and then when God called me into ministry, I'm like, no, I don't look at all like some of those guys in suits that were serving communion growing up. Like, I'm not like that at all. It's because there was an image and an expectation. I was, I was a professional musician. I honestly was not a teaching or preaching pastor until like two years ago. I was a professional musician. And I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I don't really like, playing music in churches because there are a lot of reasons. What I will say is, is it, was, it was people that understood the gospel that gave me space to be that represented Jesus. And they came from places I didn't expect. So they're like, whoa, why is this person so kind to me? Like, it's like from places they don't expect. And I think that when we're called, we talk about bless here a lot. When we're called to bring the gospel in people's lives because it is a Holy Spirit thing, I think sometimes we're those moments that people didn't expect. Like they, they maybe expected a Christian to look a specific way, <laughs> to push them into a specific way of living that is rule-based, it's law-based. Now, I'm not the type of person who always like wants to tear down law because it had its place. It was a part of God's plan. But when you come in with the gospel, it's disarming. When you're a gospel person, it's disarming. And those are the type of people that God used in my life because they didn't look at all like the framework of Christians and church people that I expected. And so if, if I could say we're, we're going to go the next couple weeks, we're going to dig in like verses, chapters, all those things. Keep in mind this tension. The Jewish people that have this rich, ancient background with all these customs, whatever it is, and these people who are like, I just received Jesus as Lord. And the expectations that Paul is removing as he removes obstacles. I want us to have that in mind as we continue through Galatians. Are there any other questions, comments, concerns, complaints? Probably there's other things I could say, but I'm like, no. Yes. Well, I, I ran into that a lot because I was brought up Catholic. Uh -huh. And, you know, it's very much this is what you do and how you behave. And it wasn't until I actually started going to a Bible study um, at Joy, that I found out um, about grace. I'd never heard about grace. As you know, like it was, you 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 got to make up for your sins, and you you got to. There's a penalty, penalty, and that. And so, um, 
I think a lot of it is we we um, how do I say? Um, I think we need to really see other people um, first and not um, try to. I don't know how to. Because I would like say you know I was an atheist because that's not what I felt. I left the church. I didn't approve of you know all their little rules and and it was like well I can't be that good anyway so you know this is crazy um so it was when I found out about grace and the the girls and just the love from the girls rather than all the the rigmarole that you know yeah. the others want you to go through yeah yeah I Real quick, uh, to that, I was raised in Colorado Springs. I know some of you have heard that, but it's like the mecca of evangelicalism. And I was raised in the 80s and 90s, which meant like everything that you would imagine in that subculture was a focus on the family, adventures and odyssey. So I, I went to school with a lot of people that were part of this like utopian subculture. They were, they, a lot of them came to Jesus through the Jesus movement or other movements. And then they're like, we want to raise our kids here. So we have Christian schools everywhere, ministries everywhere, churches everywhere. Many of the people I was raised with are far from Jesus. I, I was having a conversation with my sister a couple weeks ago, and we just started walking through from the grade above me to five years below me. The amount of people, pretty much everybody, is either not interested in Jesus or, or they're like, like jail, drug addict, all this stuff. And when I talk to each one of them, because I, I, I do a lot of ministry to people who were raised in Christianity and have now, they're either on the fence or they've stepped away. And a lot of what I hear is, I couldn't live up to it. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so they give up. And that's not the gospel that we see in Jesus Christ that Paul in Galatians is fighting for. He says some pretty harsh things, trying to get them to be like, no, it's not about that. Maybe one last comment or question. If not, I can close out. Awesome. I'm going to pray for us, and I'll be available afterwards if anybody has anything else they want to chat through. But Lord God, thank you for this time. And Lord, um, I know today I just kind of spoke about a lot of overview stuff. But Lord, I, I do pray over the next couple weeks. I pray for each teacher, God, that you're preparing their hearts now. God, I pray that, uh, that God, that you speak and you teach what you need people to hear and wrestle through them. And then Holy Spirit, as you're working in our hearts, I pray that you work through whatever's said or not said. God, this is the, we're, we're here for you. We've carved this time for you, not only for us to grow our minds, but also just to fully grow as us followers of you. So Holy Spirit, do your work that we talked about today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.